Welcome again, listeners, to another edition of Booth One, uh, your front row seat to the art of lively conversation and what's new in popular culture and the arts. This is Gary Zabinski with my photogenic co-host and sometimes swimsuit model, Roscoe. <laughs> well, that's a new one. I haven't seen would, I haven't seen be, you in a two-piece in a while. You no, you have not. Uh, that that would be a sight. Give me a few months to get ready for that. Uh, we we might have to uh, put you in one of those 1920s flappers uh, swimsuits. Yeah. You, do you remember in the the 20s men would wear these bathing suits that covered their torsos as well? And for some reason, I had my I had a swimming suit of my grandfather's. That was was it a, striped? It was no. It was a hundred years old, and I think it was made of wool. Why are we discussing photogenic swimsuit models? You brought it up. Well, we are coming to you today remotely from the studio of acclaimed Chicago-based photographer, Mark Hauser. We're here with Mark to chat about his career as a professional photographer and to ask about his work, his inspiring journey, and the meaning of life. I I hope you're up to that challenge, Mark. Sure. (laughs) I'll try anything once. Booth booth one is no place to be timid. Uh, And we're thrilled to have you here on the program today. And and if you're not a Jeff Award winner, you at least have to have uh, an Oscar, a Tony, or a Grammy Award. I'm assuming you have at least one of those. One of those. (laughs) We'll get to that. To be revealed. We'll talk about that. We have a couple of things to get to before we uh, talk to you greater length, Mark. Let's discuss Hamilton. I know it's a dead, dead, dead horse. We keep beating it. But did you hear about what they're doing now with the scalper tickets that you can only buy uh, a 14-ticket limit now. This is on Broadway. And you can't sit at... We, we were there in New York, and remember, there were people in chairs, and they had tents, and they'd been sitting there all night. Well, you can't have chairs or tents outside anymore. And if you buy one of those tickets, like the day of, you have to go right into the theater. You cannot walk to the corner and sell it. I think that's probably a long-overdue policy, don't I, you? I believe so, yes. Uh, do, you, do you like the theater, Mark? Do you go to the theater much? Uh, I used to go a lot of times until this thing happened with my leg, and it's hard to get handicapped seats. Yeah, you strike me as a, as a guy who would enjoy uh, the performing arts, especially with your ovure of actors and magicians and musicians and all kinds of things that are in your I archive. used to go to the opera house all the time, go see... Uh, La Boheme, or there was uh, Ed Paschke did a thing where he did the sets for uh, some kabuki uh, theater. So if I hear a friend of mine working on something or a friend of mine did a uh, dance thing, the Jeffrey Ballet I've gone to see a few times. Yeah, let me tell our listeners a little bit about you. Mark Hauser, you had a portrait session once with Dolly Parton that uh, started with her posing with Kermit the Frog and ended with you accidentally touching one of her breasts. That's true. <laughs> may I may I hold you for a moment? <laughs> it was, it was, it was a, a strange moment, and I I, I, was, I bumped into it, and then I said, "Oh, excuse me." And she said, "Don't worry, honey. I'm used to it." I bet she did. <laughs> yeah, this veteran Chicago photographer has shot portraits of Woody Allen, advertising campaigns with Michael Jordan, Dennis Rodman, the likes of, and your photographs have been featured in Rolling Stone and Vanity Fair, and uh, you've earned more than a hundred awards, including a Clio and the aforementioned Grammy Award. That was for an album cover that you took for John Mellencamp, correct? Yeah, yes. Uh, w- what year did you win that Grammy? Uh, Nineteen, I think it was nineteen eighty-six. Wow. It's up on the wall over there. He's got a Grammy right yes. here, within, with, almost within oh. arm's reach. If I, had, if I had a Grammy award, it would be on my coffee table with a spotlight on it. Yeah. When, <laughs> when I lost my leg, the Grammy committee heard about it 
and they paid my rent here for four months. So uh, they have a thing called Music Care. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna get to that uh, tragedy in your life here in a little bit. At, at one point, uh, you were raking in more than a million dollars a year through your photography. Uh, from 1981 to 1984, you had a $4.6 million contract with Marshall Fields. That's right. That's uh, amazing. Were you taking photographs for their catalog? or I was, for doing, their uh, their, catalog? I was doing their daily ads. I was doing 14 shots a day for the daily ads. And then on the weekends, we would take a break from the daily ads, and I would do the catalogs. And I would do like three or four catalogs a year. Sometimes... They'd have these special men's catalogs and maybe do three or four of those in a month. They wanted my portraits with their clothes. And that's what my my pictures were about. And I ended up doing portraits of like Sidney Crawford, Dennis Quaid. I mean, all different types of, you know, big, big models came in. They brought in for my shootings. And I would do portraits of them in the clothes from Ralph Lauren to... You know, uh, Vera Wang. Sure, anything that Marshall Fields was carrying that season. And, right. and they'd put them in that, and then you would do these uh, celebrity photo shots, portraits. Yeah, they, they were kind of fun things. Sometimes I, we, we'd dress somebody up like an Indian, or I shot Cindy Crawford <laughs> in, a, uh, in a boudoir scene with, a, with lingerie. I mean, most of my stuff was in the studio, but we went on location for some of the catalogs. Now you spend a lot of time shooting family portraits. Do you enjoy taking pictures of families? And uh, I, I enjoy assume, taking pictures. I assume they bring their children in. Yeah. You, you, do you like children? Yeah, I love children. Do you, do you like them more now that you're taking their pictures? I see you have a lot of early photographs from back in your career, back in the 80s, when you were beginning of, of a lot of teenagers, I, I assume people that you knew from high school and uh, you're, you're, yeah. you're growing up well. on the north side. So you enjoy the uh, family photography uh, nature of what you're doing these days. Yeah, uh, uh, except the two-year-olds. Besides that, they're, uh, they're all great. I love, I love doing... I love doing photographs. That's what's keeping me going. Yeah. What do, what do you do to tame the two-year-olds? I kind of uh, out-scream them. <laughs> <laughs> kind, of, uh, kind of part of the thing that I do during my photo sessions is I overtake the scene. And when I'm, when I'm photographing little kids, sometimes the parents get mad at me. But then they see that it works. You have to kind of like... Scare them! Oh, they they get mad at you because you're yeah. frightening their children. That, that you did that to me actually when you took my picture a few months ago. I kept waiting to settle down, you know, and calm and make pretty faces for you, and you just kept saying, "Do this, do that. Put your arms here. Lean over here." And it's like, my God, this man is exhausting me, and I just want to have my picture taken. And then I figured out, well, you've been taking my picture all along. It's, it's I just, believe you shed a tear. I, I believe shed a tear. It's going to be my new headshot—a picture of me weeping. <laughs> I've had a few people shed a tear. Yeah, Cindy. Did you make Cindy Crawford cry? Only one time when she came here, she told the the lady who was cutting the hair that day, can you give me a little trim? And they cut off six inches of her hair. And she, wow. was, she was crying. Wow. Yeah, I would think so. That's that's like, that's her career right there. Yeah, she said that I have a shooting tomorrow with Vogue magazine, and they <sighs> want me with my long hair, and this is going to really screw up my life. Roscoe, I want to... I want to move over to something that uh, we saw recently because I think they're worth a mention. 
Um, this is just digressing from Mark and, and, and his photography for a moment. Uh, we went to this brand new theater on Upper Broadway. That's Broadway in Chicago, not yes. Broadway, not Upper Broadway in New York. A new theater that they've built in the middle of really middle of nowhere. Yeah, it's like the middle of blight, almost urban blight in Edgewater, and it's called the Edge Theater. It's not a theater company. It's just it's the building. It's very modern, clean. Beautiful sight lines, and I think we saw the very first show there. Yes. Uh, we saw something called Haymarket, an anarchist's songbook, which uh, was about the Haymarket Square incident uh, during the labor movement back in the uh, 1880s. Um, so quite some time ago, and, and it's a bit of an anniversary, 130 years or something. Yes. Quite, a, quite an interesting show. It's a musical yeah. about... Anarchists and bombing and killing and things. It had a weird kind of sense of, I don't know, what would you call it? Rent to it? Yes. <laughs> it way. was the Haymarket folk music version all, of Rent. All the actors played their own instruments. Mm -hmm. So they were, in fact, the band. Uh, they played multiple instruments. Very talented group of, of people. But I think the Edge Theater needs a good shout out. They're going to be booking many, many more things, especially for smaller theater companies in the city. Well, yeah, and, and what's exciting is a woman who has some money apparently decided she wanted to have a nice theater in that neighborhood. And they sunk some coin into that. It, it's, you know, it's beautifully. It was like being at the Goodman. Nice lobby, nice it, it, proscenium theater. And a proscenium theater with, with, a, with a, a bit of a fly you know, space. Could, could, we could, not, many, not much wing space, but they do have a, a yeah. small fly space. So it's going to be very sought after by a lot of theater companies. Yes, they're already booked through fall of uh, 2017. Sorry. There are a lot of Just very supportive people in Chicago to the arts. There are. There are people that uh, donate the Pritzkers and... You know, people like that that donate to uh, do things for the arts, which is really, which is really great. There's, there's one family that donated 17 Leonardo da Vinci's to the Art Institute, and I did a portrait of them for the Art Institute. It's amazing some of the people and how generous they are. Wow. I want to give some people who are listening an idea of where we're actually sitting in your studio. You live in a solid brick building away on the west side of Chicago on Western Avenue here. I suspect from your roof you could see a beautiful vista of the downtown skyline. And it's a beautiful open space with exposed beam ceilings. And his photography, your photography, I should say, is everywhere. Pictures from your youth, pictures from the middle of your career, family portraits from the career that you're doing now, beautiful picture of Michael Jordan uh, staring right at me here uh, nearby, and then an area where you actually do your work uh, with lighting um, uh, fixtures and backdrops and things like that. It's really quite cool to be yeah, it's in a here. It's, it's a, a gigantic space. And it feels artistic. Yeah. It feels like art goes I on. I feel artistic here. just sitting here. Let me ask you, Mark, who did you have the most fun shooting in a session? Can you remember? Was it, and I'm going to just name drop here, George Burns, Woody Allen, somebody like that? Woody Allen was kind of like a con man. <laughs> I got there, and he was kind of like, um, uh, you know, I don't like to have my picture taken. I'm not going to give you a lot of time. I'm very busy right now doing a thing on the life story of Bob Hope. And I've been doing research for like the last uh, few weeks. Mark, what do you think of Bob Hope? 
I said, well, Woody, I really don't like Bob Hope. I never liked his comedy or anything. He says, I'm glad you said that, Mark, because I, I hate when people agree with me because I don't like Bob Hope either. I just wanted to get your opinion. <laughs> Woody Allen, I, I, I walked into this little room and it was... He, his desk in his office is like the George Washington's original desk. On the wall, he's got like major pieces of artwork, but we removed everything from the office to show just him, and he just gave me that classic pose. I just said, uh, I just need a picture for the cover of the magazine. What do you need? He just leaned over toward me and looked at me, and I got, that's it. And then on the way up, just so happens, he's in the Psychoanalytic Society building in <laughs> New York. How apropos. His, yeah. his uh, therapist is on a floor a few above him. And that's the Ed Sullivan building, which is where uh, David Letterman was. Right, the late show. Was right, next to, right next to there. So we went up the elevator and get into the elevator, and Woody Allen's sitting right there. And I, I said, hi, Woody, I'm Mark Hauser, and we're going to do your picture today. And he says, I just hate to have my picture taken, Mark. And he takes his glasses off, and he puts his hand over his face, and I take my little Polaroid SX-70 and shoot that picture, and that's what they use for the cover of the magazine. Wow. That was fantastic. So, it's, it's an iconic photo that you were referring to where he's just sitting at a table in front of some sheer curtains. He puts his hand on the table. He puts his other hand on his chin, uh, and he leans in, and it's just... It's the perfect Woody Allen yeah, looking picture. Looking right at the camera. It's the right perfect at Woody Allen picture. Yeah. Who, who would you say was the most troublesome person you ever had a session with? Jim McMahon, the mm -hmm. football player. The quarterback, the ex-quarterback for the Chicago Bears yeah, who yeah. led them to the Super Bowl championship. Tell, tell us why that is. Because he got hired by a computer game company to do a, a computer game. And he was a character in the computer game. And I got hired to photograph him doing all the poses for the computer game that they were putting into the computer game. And when he got there, I said, uh, Jim, you got to take off the sunglasses. Uh-oh. And he says, no, I, I don't take off the sunglasses. So we got to take off the sunglasses because we can't have the sunglasses for this, for, for this. He says, well, I'm not taking off the sunglasses. So then I told, told the client, I said, hey, he won't take off his sunglasses. And uh, it, it took a while, but he finally took off his sunglasses. But he did not want to take those glasses off. Were his eyes bloodshot or something? Or? No, no, he just doesn't. Uh, he, I think his eyes are sensitive to light. I don't know. He was a very quirky fellow. And they did a picture of him and his son for a charity. And the same thing. He got there and he said, Mark, you know the rules. I don't take off my glasses. <laughs> so okay. he laid that down right away. Yeah. Sophia Loren. How was Sophia Loren? She was amazing. I don't I get starstruck by a lot of people. When I walked in the room with Sophia Loren, she was just so gorgeous. And first of all, when I walked, we went to her house. And we walked up to her house. And there's this woman, and she looked like she was like six foot six with her high heels <laughs> and the tall wig. And it was kind of like, kind of looking kind of like a drag queen. So then she turned around and she was just so gorgeous. She spent like $150,000 on the wardrobe for the shooting. Just like, I, I got hired by a company to do pictures for her 
condominium chain, her eyeglass company. Her I remember the eyeglass company. Yeah, her, her jeans and her her, her she had a a, a boat. Uh, what do they call it? Docks that were owned by her. And you could buy these places in Florida that is a condominium chain owned by her. So I got hired to do these pictures of her in all these different locations at the place, and every place she had this another amazing outfit. And then the best part about the whole thing was uh, one day I was sitting down, she sits behind me, and she gives me a back massage. Oh, and, my God. And, and it was just like... <laughs> Wow! Wow! I just got chills. Yeah, (laughs) because she had those big, she had those nails, not like Dolly Parton's nails, which were like three inches, but uh, hers are big. Substantial, yeah. She always had beautiful, beautiful hands. Well, she had beautiful everything, but her hands were always absolutely gorgeous. You've taken photographs of thousands and thousands of of people is there anybody that you would have loved or still would love to have a photo session with that you never have the uh, had the opportunity to shoot i'd like to do uh, yeah i'd like to photograph robert de niro and then i worked on a movie with uma thurman and i really wanted to do pictures of her and that was in my contract that because i was doing the photographs for the movie i was supposed to do a portrait of Robert De Niro and Uma Thurman as part of my fee, but they never ha- it never happened. But I met I went to a party, and I saw Uma there, and I started talking to her, and she says, "Oh, I've seen your photographs. I love your photographs a lot." I said, "Well, I'd love to do a picture of you." No, I don't want to do any pictures. Let's a, lot of, a lot of a lot of actresses don't like still photographs, or actors don't like still photographs done of them because. Their genre is all motion, and, you know, the motion kind of hides a lot of things. When you have a still photograph, you see everything. And film, the heads are moving, and, you know, you don't see anything quite long enough to get the total detail. And the observer has the time to really take in the photo since it's still sitting right in front of you. You can really drink in all of the details and find the flaws, the personality, what that person might be thinking in their head, what's in their eyes, how their and hands that's what my photographs are talk. all about. That's exactly what your photographs are all about. You grew up here uh, on the north side in the north suburbs in Wilmette. Uh, right. You went to New Trier High School, very popular high school. Lots of artistic people came out of New Trier. Uh, yeah. Many theater people, lots of artists. And Margaret, very Charlton smart. Heston. Indeed. And Margaret. Yeah, she was you're, there. you're too young to know Nan Margaret. Oh no, I knew Nan Margaret. Really? Her, her mother had a little sewing place in downtown Wilmette. Do you love Ann Margaret? Do you, do, do you, I love Ann Margaret? I don't know if I love Ann Margaret, but she was she was great doing those musicals. She was. Bye bye birdie. I've always had a special place in my heart for Ann Margaret. I have not. You, As no, you know, you, you hate you hate my. I have, a, I have a special place, not in my heart. But for we, we saw carnal knowledge recently, and she was pretty brilliant in that. Well, that's an exception. I don't don't care for her when she did what she her genre really was. What um, was your genre? Well, she was sort of a musical star, right? Somewhat Viva comedy. Las Viva Las Vegas, yeah, <laughs> bombshell. I didn't really think she was very bombshelly. I'm like I'm speechless. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you are. <laughs> and she just turned 75. Wow. But we digress. Mm-hmm. Did your parents encourage your, I guess at that point it was a hobby, 
your hobby of photography when you started? What were you, 12, 13 years old? 13 years old. Uh, my parents, when I was really young, wanted to try to find something that I was going to do and enjoy for a living. And uh, my parents sent me to North Northwestern's college and, and, and had me take all these aptitude tests to find out what I'd be good at. And uh, the aptitude test said I'd either be good uh, working at Colonel Sanders, <laughs> <laughs> pumping gas, but you have this really, uh, he really has a really good neck of imagination and ideas, and maybe he'll do something like that. So my father was a, a photo obvious, so we had a dark room in the basement. Then I went to camp in Colorado, and I bought, my father bought me this little camera, I started taking pictures, and it just it just became something that flowed. And people saw my pictures and said, "Hey, can I buy one of those?" I said, "Boy, I not only enjoy doing this, but I can make money." And I went, even at a, at a young age, I was really into uh, working. I liked working. I worked. I actually did work at Colonel Sanders. But uh, so, do you know you know the secret ingredients? No, they have it comes in that bag. <laughs> oh, they don't tell you. It just comes already mixed. And no, you get a, a, a one-pound bag with 50 pounds of flour. You dump the one-pound bag and 50 pounds of flour, then you sift it. And that's, they don't, no one knows that. That's the coating. It's, it's, it's a top, top secret. Speaking of making money, while you were still a teenager, you began to take photographs for Playboy magazine here in Chicago. Uh, you were hired by, well, I don't know if you were hired directly by Hugh Hefner, but he was responsible for everything that went on. You, you took quite a number of photographs for them. At some point, did Mr. Hefner decide that this guy's a little too young to be on our payroll and, and we're no, just, we're just sort of skirting the laws here? He hired me to do photographs of girls they went to high school with. And they were all 16 and above, and I got signatures from their parents. But after I did the photographs, they were really scared to publish them. The art director of Playboy wanted my photographs to look like paintings. So I did this series of nudes of these girls, the neutral high school students, in kind of like painterly poses. But they never ran. I have them in a box here still. Oh, do you really? I'd love to have a look at those someday, just to, just to see what your early stuff was, was all about. I want to ask you about uh, your influences early on. I know that you essentially are kind of self-taught, but you were mentored by local uh, Chicago photographers. Uh, you spent some time at a place called The Dark Room, Right. in Lincoln Park, which was a very famous enclave for photographers in the uh, mid, I guess it was started in the mid-80s. You probably became involved with them a little bit later than that. Did you have uh, influences and, and oh, people that you admired their work of that you tried to maybe sort of not imitate, but at least draw something from? Irving Penn. Yeah. Uh, my hero when I was growing up, uh, first of all, I, when I was at Nutri High School, you had the luxury of being taught by somebody that was an amazing photographer himself that taught you and showed you what good photography was. And by that, I saw stuff that I said, I want to do stuff like that. And then it was like Irving Penn, Richard Avedon, Henry Cartier-Bresson, Danny Lyon. These are photographers that I looked at and said, boy, I want to do stuff like that. 
And uh, so I took their stuff and kind of created my own stuff with it. I would go downtown with my own work and show it to people that are hiring people and show it and say, what do you think? What do you think? They go, this is nice, Mark, but your shadows are too deep. So they come back a week later with shadows are a little more bright. Oh, this is good. And for a year, I kept showing my stuff to this same art director over and over again. And he was the art director for uh, ABC Television. I don't know where Wham, one day I walked in. He said, I have the perfect assignment for you, Mark. I'm going to have you shoot all the newscasters on different locations. Just like it happened in Playboy, I had the right stuff at the right time and at the right place. That's sort of what having a Booth One experience is, to be in the right place at the right time and know the right people. You once photographed Janis Joplin, did you not? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that session? I was at Ravinia. And uh, that was kind of like I hear that concert that stopped rock concerts being done at Ravinia. And she was backstage running around screaming with the Southern Comfort bottle. <laughs> and, she was, and she was singing. And the rest of the band was all sitting around her. And she was, you know, singing that, and that, like that voice. At the beginning, all I had was one camera, one lens, I had like a $150 camera and I, a bag filled with Trix film. And I went backstage. And that night when she did the show, she attacked Andy Fran Usher. Andy Fran Usher did these ushers that sure. do the concerts. He, he, she got on top of him and started straddling him on, on, on the ground and, and singing some song. I forgot what it is. <laughs> you know. And uh, the picture I, I, I took of her, she's laughing with a Southern Comfort bottle, which is a very popular, I've seen a lot of other fo- photographs of her. I think she had that bottle in her hand a lot. We're, we're, like, weren't you in high school when this happened? Yeah. I mean, well, I started working for Playboy when I was 13. So were you hired to film Janis Joplin, or were you just like hanging out and you... Isn't there a story where you got backstage? There was a mag- uh, a newspaper in um, Wilmette called the a company called Pioneer Press, which was owned by Life Magazine, and they hired me to be a photographer. They hired me to go to all these events, and one of them was uh, go- going to uh, Ravinia for these concerts where they had people like Yo Yo Ma or you know all different people play there. Ravinia is very still a very popular music festival. Yeah, they the got Arts, all Quartet. the big all the big stars every single summer. Yeah. Uh, I know you started out taking photographs very young in your life, as you mentioned. You were working for Playboy at the age of thirteen. If you could have pursued any other profession besides photographer, wh- what would that have been, possibly? Boy, that's a good question. Um, maybe you own a hot dog stand. <laughs> Like our friend Larry Newman Jr. Yes, and his dad, yes. or or one of those. Uh, my friend uh, uh, Donnie Medea owns a taco place over on Damon, and they have those uh, trucks. They go yeah, the, to the beach. Food yeah. trucks, yeah. Food trucks. I'd like to. Uh, that, that sounds like something that would be fun. It sounds. It's a lot of work. I bet. Hauser's Red Hots. I just coined a name. I'm just throwing it out there for your consideration. Hauser's Bowser's. Hauser's Bowser's is even better. Wow. Here's a hot dog, and may I take your picture? (laughs) (laughs) I'll be eating the hot dog. And then you could have pictures of all kinds of people eating the hot dogs. At one point in my career, uh, me and a partner that we were doing digital work, we were going to open a hot dog stand and have my photographs all over the walls. And I have, there's a lot of restaurants in town 
that uh, it, it said Donnie Medea, the dove has my photographs hanging there, and there was a place called the Steak Steak Joint. The they, Steak Joint on Wells. Oh yeah, they, they had they had my stuff hanging there. Uh, there was a lot, and then uh, Second City, and a lot of places had my photographs hanging. There was one really incredible place, the Saloon. They had they owned a hundred of my photographs. Let's, I want to talk about your philosophy of photographing people. As I look through your photographs and, and you know, what you've said already, it's sort of about catching the essence of who the person is. And I'm thinking, well, he's more about that. And, and this is a picture that's not glamorous, but you know, this is who this this is exactly the essence of Woody Allen. But I'm looking over here at this ginormous picture of Michael Jordan, and boy, that's a glamour photo. I would say that if people want photographs of what the people are really like. Like that picture of Michael Jordan, that was like one of the first photo sessions I had with him. That was for the cover of ESPN magazine. When I got there, I shot that in the middle of a basketball court. And I, had, I put one of the, that chair that you're sitting in, in the middle of the basketball court, I put it right there, put my background down, set everything up, and um, I said, Michael, just sit down there. So he was sitting there waiting for me, and as he was waiting for me, I just kept taking pictures. And he was looking down at the ground. And then I said, hey, Michael, look up here. And then he hated when I screamed at him. <laughs> he hated. I would say, say yes. Say yes, Michael. Mark, I stop with the shouting. It's like tugging on Superman's cape. You, you, you just don't, don't do it. He says, Mark... Are you a professional? I said, yeah, I'm a professional. He says, I'm a professional too, Mark. And us professionals, when we do it, we do it right the first time. So I'm going to give you one roll of film for each ad that you're doing of me today. And I had one day with them that I shot ads for six different companies. I had one big studio that was 15,000 square feet, and we had different sets all over. You would go from one set to the other. And he gave me one roll of film for each set. Wow. And then he said, well, I, I, don't, I, I don't have a lot of time today, Mark. i got to go to the golf course. Um, <laughs> yes, he had two right. passions, basketball and golf. And I think he still does. Yeah. That photo of Michael Jordan is beautifully lit. Is that your lighting? Is that an accident? Is it something you were no, able to no. do? That's exactly what, when I was looking at the work of these people, Irving Penn, Richard Avedon, all these other photographers, one thing I noticed was this amazing light. And I, I, I researched it, and I found that a lot of these people used windows. They would put the people next to a window. Well, the problem is, is that when you get a job at 8 o'clock at night, there's no light from the window. So I created a light that imitated window light, and that's what I use now. Oh, and, okay. and it's kind of like I have a consistency. I, I bring people into my world. Like Irving Penn has this book called World in a Small Room, and when you walk into this controlled situation, it doesn't matter what you do in that situation, the exposure's right, everything's right. Like with Woody Allen, I had a million on this table. Well... I took a meter reading with the, the camera, and the meter said 16 at the edge of the table. So I knew that any time people get to the edge of the table like that, the exposure is going to be right. 
Now, my job was to get something special out of people while they're in that zone. That's what my photographs are about, creating things within the zone. I want to touch on just this briefly. In 2007, you had a serious accident while you were uh, on location uh, shooting. I I believe it was on a golf course. Right. Um, I'm not sure if you were shooting the golf course for an architectural point of view or or what, but you were up on a crane, as I understand it, and the crane uh, unfortunately collapsed while you were up there, and uh, you were seriously injured by that. Um, and, and you still bear the results of that. Your, your leg was damaged, uh, some damage to your right eye. How did that affect your approach to your career and profession? Was there a time when you said, well, it's over for me, it's done? Or did you just fight through all that? I never said it's over for me. Uh, the big thing is, is that there was a period of time when I couldn't work. I couldn't walk on my leg. They had to wait till the leg Healed back. I, I went to a guy, and he says, I'm going to save your luck, Mr. Hauser, but you're not going to be able to walk out of for do anything for three, three to four years. So I had no support in my leg, and then they had this support system that they built. Uh, and that lasted five or six years. I, I used that support system. And then one day, I got a blister inside that support system, and the blister turned into gangrene, and then they had to remove my leg. One thing throughout my whole life and my whole career, my father told me, I had two people in my life. My father was the businessman. My mother was the creative. My father would say, if you don't scream your name out to the world, nobody else will. So when I first went out there, I went to every place I could, from Playboy to, to Vogue, to, I would get an airplane when I was a kid to, to show me work to magazines in New York just to say, hey, I'm here. I want to do your photographs. Now, I didn't get a good response in some places. I went to this, this uh, condonance, and this lady said, well, Mr. Hauser, I love your photographs, but you should be an architectural photographer. So that was her opinion, but then two weeks later, I got a call from condonance to do this whole series of portraits for him. So you just never know. I, I did a, a lot of theater stuff for the Guthrie Theater and uh, theater, uh, Goodman Theater and Steppenwolf for um, magazines in New York. So you just never know when that phone rings what's going to happen. It's kind of like those guys at Pawn Stars. They say you never know who's going to walk in that door and what they're going to walk in with. When my phone rings, I never know. It could be Woody Allen. Above me here and to over my left shoulder, there's a uh, framed caricature of some eyeglasses, and below that are some actual eyeglasses. Uh, are, are those George Burns's eyeglasses? Yeah. They're, they're, um, I uh, did a photo session with George Burns at for Caesar's Palace, and every day he would go down to in Caesar's Palace and he'd play gin rummy. And he had these two female bodyguards with these humongous breasts, <laughs> one on each side of him, while he was, while, while he, and they would lean over him like this. They were his bodyguards. I, and then when I went to, went to his office, I saw there was a pair of broken glasses on the nightstand. And I said, hey, George, you think I can have those glasses? 
Shermark, Shermark, yeah, yeah, you can have the glasses. Now, you know, he never smoked those cigars. They were just a prop. They're he, always unlit. He just had yeah, them. Yeah, he just had a cigar in his hand. So then when I did it, we were sitting at a table, and on the table, I don't know if you've ever been to this, some restaurants, they put that paper on the table, and he just took um, uh, like a crayon, and he drew this pair of glasses with a cigar, and that's what's... There's a drawing of the ensign George Burns above the uh, absolutely, glasses. absolutely priceless. I I love that piece here. Uh, it's such a compliment to the hundreds of uh, portrait photographs that were that were surrounded by. You've been living in Chicago for a very long time. Yep. Name me three of the best things about being a Chicagoan and living here and breathing here and working here. Besides hot dogs? Loyalty. People are really loyal. People have been really good to me. People during this whole time that I'm having all these problems, people have come to my rescue, and people have come to me and said, hey, I got an idea for you. Uh, When I came back after the the fall and... I, I couldn't uh, couldn't walk, and I after all the medical bills and stuff, even though I got insurance money, and never covered enough. So when I came back, I lost my building, I lost everything. I had I didn't I needed to get some work. A guy named Joe Shanahan, who owns Metro, came to me and says, "Hey, we're doing this charity thing, Mark, with Groupon, and maybe you and Groupon can get together." And I was the first photographer to ever do a elaborate Groupon. So. They said, hey, why don't we do a group on with you, and we'll see what happens. We'll charge $98, and we'll give, instead of group on getting the half that they usually get, that'll go to the charity, and you'll get the other half mark. Well, little did we know that in, in a matter of a week, I sold 650 of them. Wow. That's a that's a record even for anything on Groupon. I think. Wow, that's fantastic. I sold 4,800 portrait sessions with Groupon. Besides, besides loyalty, what else is uh, great about being a Chicagoan? I, was, I lived in New York for a year. I lived in London for a year. I lived in California for a year. I lived in Texas for a while. But what's really great about Chicago is anywhere you go, you, it's like a small town. You just meet people, and, and people go out of their way to help you. I, I, I go into places, oh, Mark, if you need some alcohol, sure. And then a lot of people don't even know who I am. Or they come here and they say, hey, we need your picture. But, uh, I mean, people are always, as I said, especially the arts, there are a lot of people that are out to help the arts, people that help, help people. It is a small town. Roscoe, it always amazes me when we go out to the theater or a restaurant. Nine times out of ten, I'll hear you say behind me, why, hello, and it's somebody you haven't seen since you went to high school in right. DeKalb or something, or some long-lost friend from, from college, or even a, even a workmate. And I mean, this is a big city, but you're always running into, not just you, but people are always running into each other, and, and, and it's a very well, friendly and, and environment. Yeah, like last night we went out for dinner before going to this show at the Steppenwolf. And a man next to us started joining in our conversation, and he was joined by his fiance. And by the end of the night, the five of us were best friends. That's changing business cards. We'll be in touch. Yeah, uh, it turned out Betsy and the woman knew a friend in common, and the woman had just sung at a memorial service for someone they knew. It was it was crazy. 
But it Could was be. fun. And then I ran into a co-worker, and then we saw yeah. a movie star at the bar at Steppenwolf. Just saw uh, somewhat of a movie star, yes, and a television star. Are you sad that Marshall Fields is no more? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to get uh, work from the, the world I used to be in. And there are no Marshall Fields. You know, I, I went to Carson's. I used to do stuff for Land's End. But Land's End, everybody's changed their directions and changed their world. Also, I'm like... Um, Considered to be the old, old classic. They say, yeah, we're going to use this new young guy. Oh, you're too expensive. They don't even ask you how much you charge. They just say you're too expensive. Oh, let's assume. Yeah, you strike me as, take this in the kindest possible way, you strike me as old school. You're someone who I think misses the old Kodachrome film, the Tri-X film in your bag, rolls sure. and rolls of it. Uh, the digital age is upon us, and there's no escaping it, is there? When I used to do portraits at my old studio, and we used to shoot film, I used to shoot a roll of film for a portrait for when people came in with a family. Now, with digital, it's such... People are so used to it. You, they, you shoot 50 to 100 pictures because it's like, it doesn't cost anything. A roll of tracks now is $7. When I was shooting tracks, it was a dollar. To process it was $5 with a proof sheet. Now it's $25 with a proof sheet. It's a whole different world. Because now film is so scarce, it costs a lot more money to use it. I just did a project for uh, at Properties for Thad Wong. When they hired me to do it, they said he wants me to go all over the city of Chicago and do pictures. Well, you know, when I used to do it with film, shooting 1,700 pictures on film could get really expensive. Well, I did this project. It was just like wham, 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 you know, very fast, just going around with my camera. And I shot 1,700 pictures like it was nothing. If someone came into your studio today and offered you the sky's the limit, whatever it costs, would you do a, a film photo session with someone? Do you still have an actual film camera that you could do that with? I'm just starting to shoot Polaroid again. Cool. Polaroid is now manufacturing. Their, uh, there's new people that took over the company, and they're manufacturing this uh, Polaroid uh, positive-negative film. I'm starting to shoot with that again. I'm just waiting to be able to get all the elements that I need. Like yeah. real Polaroid film. Yeah, yeah. This is, yeah. yeah. With, with a, it's a new popular thing to, yeah. to take Polaroids. Yeah, I have, a, I have a friend who's obsessed with Polaroids, and he found a, a place in Europe that still makes the Polaroid film, and so he orders it and has it shipped over and stores it in his refrigerator. But this is, I, you know, I have some friends who work for the Library of Congress in film restoration for movies, and there's always, the, in this tiny little world of people who love old movies, there's always this discussion about digital versus preserving things in 35 millimeter and the digital just never looks right. I mean, are there, are there things that you miss that you could do with film that you can't do with digital? Yeah. It, the digital world does not get the dimension. It doesn't get, it doesn't get the look. Somebody looked at one of my pictures the other day and they said, Oh, that doesn't, the, the, the color of that picture doesn't look digital. Because it wasn't, it was film. The big thing is, is that digital has its own look. It's sharper, more detail, but it doesn't have that dark delight. It doesn't have, doesn't have the sensitivity. But you can do th more things with digital files. Mm -hmm. What used to be in retouching that used to take somebody four hours, takes somebody 
three minutes. For example, if I watch Casablanca today, I, after having seen it 400 times, sometimes I'll watch it now and I spend the entire time just looking at how beautiful they made Ingrid Bergman look in that entire movie. Because you, know, you just want to, like, read, your skin is soft and flawless and beautiful. Sure. And I don't think they can do that anymore. You know, another great example of someone who glows in the movies is Claudette Colbert in the restored It Happened One Night film. Sometimes her face looks like it's made out of platinum and her eyes look like they're diamonds. It's a spectacular effect. And you're right, you can't get that kind of thing with digital. I, I, yeah, I miss she smiles it. and her teeth glisten. <laughs> she, you have to turn away almost. Old-time movies have their own different look, though, the way they used to light them with those big old Moe Richardson spotlights, and it just had that glow to it. As a result of your not being able to work for a while because of your accident, you, you at one point put up your entire collection, negatives and prints, everything, you put it up for sale, hoping to get offers, and I don't know if you were doing auctions or, or mm-hmm. working with a gallery or not. How much of your archives did you um, part with during that time? I didn't part with anything yet. Um, really? I was offered some of the one company offered to buy everything, but they didn't offer enough. And <laughs> a woman that appraises for Christie's and Sotheby's appraised my collection, and it was a pretty serious amount. I didn't even realize it was worth that much, but now it's even worth more. Is there something in your archive that you is part of an agreement that you positively, absolutely would not part with? You can well, have everything some, except... Uh, there are some images. Michael Jordan, I can't sell this stuff. Uh, his lawyer wrote me a letter saying that if you use my, Mr. Jordan's image to promote yourself anymore, Mr. Trouser, we'll sue you. So I don't. They, so you're going to hang on to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess you'll have to. I mean, some uh, of the, yeah. He's got deeper pockets than I do. Are you planning any showings of your work, either your recent work or past work or retrospective, or even just these family uh, portraits that you've been taking over the last year or so? Uh, uh, is there anything we can look forward to in a Well, the showing? next show I have planned is uh, at Adventureland, which is owned by uh, Tony Fitzpatrick. Sure. And um, it's a show called Perverts in Your Neighborhood. <laughs> okay. And uh, it's, I set up in a bar that had, had a night called Hook Torture. And all these people that were kind of like transsexuals, transvestites, uh, people that were into being, you know, all different types, came to this thing. I set up a background, and I did portraits of all of them. Same thing with the same light, one light, same control situation. And I put them in there and I did this series of photographs, which is going to be the show. It's never, and these are all shot on real film, silver prints. The last thing I did, which is a big thing, is I did a thing on, which is a book that uh, on Cloud Hands called um, Body Language, which is uh, people and their tattoos. And that's hopefully I'll be having another show of that because I'm really trying to promote that book more. So I'm trying to get the, the photographs in more and more places. What, what's a silver print? Silver print is, you see, the photographs that you used to get, they were on silver paper. They, they used silver to make the paper. That, that white surface is made out of silver bromide. And they mix it together with silver. And then they, make, they also have platinum paper. 
which is very expensive. And now the paper that's used is is just inkjet paper. You know, people use inkjet printers. And it's just uh, covered with the... Is that the same as a silver gelatin print? Right, that's what uh, silver print is. Silver right, gelatin. so that's like the, the old Hollywood, right, right. beautiful movie star, eyes, Greta Garbo's eyes are sparkling. Also things that, you know, maybe like our parents' wedding pictures were, were sure. printed on that because, you know, I remember my mother's wedding picture, her dress... Wherever there was a detail of a pearl or a gem or, or, or some sort of sparkling thing, it just pops right off the, the page. Speaking of your photography books, I was leafing through one of your books of photographs here over a, a great course of your career. I came across two pictures about the circus. Uh, we, we've talked about the circus on this program a number of times. We've especially talked about elephants. Here's a picture of a woman on top of an elephant that's rearing up on its hind legs, and she's in full showgirl dress, and she's got one arm raised, and there's lights behind. Tell me about that photograph. Do you remember taking that and, and, oh, and where bet. that was? So what, you, did you enjoy the circus, and were you hired to do that? Yeah, I traveled with the circus for three months, and I lived in a train car with, that, um, with the person in the picture. This young lady? Yeah, she was, she was the one that got me the job to do work for the circus. And then I got other magazines to fund it. Living Social, Condé Nast, different people funded as I was traveling. People would see the pictures and they said, boy, I, I'd like to get some of those. At the beginning, it was a big deal to me, so I rented all this equipment, $25,000 worth of camera equipment, put it in my car, Went to the circus at the tra- they were they traveled they traveled in a train, so I would park my car at the train and go to meet the train and get in. Well, when before I was leaving, I put everything in my back trunk of my car, went back in my house to get my luggage, got outside, and my car was broken into and all the camera equipment was stolen. I had oh, no, no insurance, no nothing, but I had to do this thing. So, and I didn't have a lot of money, so I went to the store. Bought two cameras for hundred dollars a piece, uh, like forty rolls of film, and I went to shoot the shoot the circus. I was using a camera, which is I still have. It's a little teeny camera fits in your pocket, and it's a little point and shoot. I shoot a lot of stuff with point and shoot cameras. I was right below that elephant, and I was w- right there. And uh, the elephant went up. I followed up. I, w- I followed it in, and as I said, the the girl was in the picture. I, I was seeing at the time. I, I, I said, smile, and she waved at me, and I shot the picture. You, you realize you, you can't get a picture like this anymore because they've just recently retired the elephants from the circus. They're not going to travel, Barnum and Bailey anyway, they're not going to travel with their elephants any longer. They're sending them off down to uh, Sarasota, Florida, where they have a huge compound. This is an extraordinary photograph. Did the elephant seem happy to you? Yeah. <laughs> they seemed very well, happy to me. Yeah. They Derek- were uh, they were parading around, and then um, when they weren't on stage, they were in these tents, and they had their own tents where they were where they were feeding. And they have they had people with all those shovels shoveling all that stuff. There were humane reasons for taking the elephants out of the circus. So Gary went by himself to the circus the last time they were in town. The the, the point of the story is he reported that this elephant seemed perfectly happy. Yeah, they, these, they, they were happy. Now, what's really great now is how many calls I get 
to buy printed elephants. Where can people go to find out more about your work or to book a session with you? Do you have a website, Mark, or uh, just a phone go, number? They can go, the gallery that's right now showing my work is Madrone Gallery. They have a show of my stuff of Cuba. And then they have another section of my celebrity stuff. I did a picture of um, John Mellencamp, Willie Nelson, Neil Young, and Dave Matthews. I was just looking at that picture online a day ago. It's a fantastic picture. And so when is your upcoming show at Tony Fitzpatrick's place? This? Not until uh, next, uh, next uh, January. Uh, January of 2017. Yeah. How about if they want to book a session with you? They just call my studio, 312-243-7824, ask for Tara, and they can book a session with me. And your website address is... HauserPortraits.com. Dot com. I recommend uh, our listeners at least go to Mark's uh, website. Even if you don't live in Chicago and you're not planning on having a session, you will be very, very inspired by what you yeah. see there, don't you think? Yeah. Is there anything we haven't touched on or talked about? Well, I just want people to know that, that I am alive. I don't live on a desert island. And I'm open to uh, people's ideas. If people have an idea of what they're looking for in a ph photograph, I'm willing to work with them on their idea and work with them in, uh, from the concept stage. I just love taking pictures. That's what's keeping me alive. I've been through a lot in the last bunch of years, and my doctor told me the thing that's keeping me alive is my, my love of photography. People should be doing what they love for as long as they possibly can do it. As you say, you uh, have recovered from serious injury and tragedy and, and potentially career-ending, um, but you fought through that because your work sustains you, and I think that's a marvelous philosophy to live by. Just don't give up. Just don't give up. We usually end our podcast sessions, uh, Mark, with a uh, segment that we have called The Kiss of Death. Not to be morbid about it, but we generally do it as a celebration of someone's life. I think this one will be fairly interesting to you. It has to do with the advertising world. What do you think, Roscoe and Mark, what do you think is considered to be the world's most successful ad ever created? Print ad or campaign? Television ad. Oh. How does America spell cheese? K-R-A-F-T? <laughs> That's a pretty good cheese. You always have cheese on, the, on your mind, don't you? What do you think, Mark? Do you, do you have any idea what Why? it might be considered the world's greatest television ad ever created? Where's the beef? That's an excellent one. Where's the beef? We're going to talk about a gentleman named Bill Backer, a lapsed lyricist who's a classic 1971 commercial, is considered to be the world's most famous television ad and taught a fractious world of potential Coca-Cola customers to sing in perfect harmony. I'd like to teach the world to sing. Yeah, that one. I just yeah, saw a piece on that on TV. Yeah, indeed. Mr. Backer and his team immortalized jingles and slogans that proclaimed stuff like things go better with Coke and defined the soft drink as the real thing. This guy had quite the amazing career, had declared that Miller Lite was everything you wanted in a beer and less. <laughs> 
he came up with that and allowed that. Little girls have pretty curls, but I like Oreos. Do you remember that from our childhood? Yes. What a great campaign that was. He also anointed the break devoted to beer drinking as... Miller time. Reserved festive occasions for Low and Brow. Here's to good friends. Tonight is kind of special. Uh, Mr. Backer had no illusions, however, about uh, what collaboration he would be most remembered for as the vice chairman and worldwide creative director of Backer, Spielvogel, Bates. I'm not sure if you've ever worked for them, but you've mm-hmm. probably heard of them, Mark. Yeah. His little hymn, I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony which you're so, you so beautifully renditioned there, Roscoe, became a memorable commercial for Coca-Cola, a hit record, the inspiration for a Super Bowl advertisement in 1991, and the coda for Mad Men on AMC. Okay. He's sitting on a hillside. I don't know if you watch Mad Men, but at the end of it, he's sitting on a hillside, and this tune comes up. It's a very strange ending for the show. Here's how it all happened. According to his account, he was on his way to London in January of 1971 to meet with the songwriters Billy Davis and Roger Cook when his flight was diverted by fog to Shannon Airport in Ireland. The next morning, Mr. Backer was stunned to see the diverse group of passengers who had been angry the night before cheerfully conversing in the coffee shop. People from all over the world, forced by circumstances, were having a Coke or a cup of coffee, or a tea together, he wrote in his book, The Care and Feeding of Ideas. That's a great title for a book. Uh, They were making eye contact over a Coke, and they were keeping each other company. That was the basic idea, to see Coke not as it was originally designed to be, a liquid refresher, but as a tiny bit of commonality between all people. So by the time he flew to Liverpool, because it was still fogged in in London, he recalled, I could see and hear the song that treated the whole world as if it were a person. A person the singer would like to help and get to know. I'm not sure how the lyric should start, he said, but I know the last line, and on a paper napkin... He scribbled, I'd like to buy the world a Coke and keep it company. You can't make this stuff up. Coca-Cola's president deemed it too sappy. Did you think it was, did you think it was sappy? Well, yes. Coke bottlers hated it. So Mr. Backer persuaded the company to try a video version instead. Uh, Harvey Gabor, uh, a young uh, art director, envisioned a diverse chorus in native outfits lip-syncing. A cast was rehearsed at the White Cliffs of Dover. (laughs) But after a three-day downpour, production was shifted to a hillside outside of Rome. And at first, hundreds of impatient and parched schoolchildren unceremoniously stampeded to grab free bottles of soda. So a new cast was finally recruited. The commercial became a success and recordings by both the New Seekers and the Hillside Singers with references to the Coke removed. They, they actually yeah, yeah. had a real song of that. It hit the Billboard charts. Mr. Backer, William Montague Backer, was born in Manhattan in 1926 to uh, William Bryant Backer, who was a real estate developer and the former, this is his mother's name, I love her mother, his mother's name, Ferdinanda Ligere. It's a real movie star name. He wrote musical comedies in high school, served in the Navy and graduated from Yale in 1950, and he hoped to become a songwriter, but his mother persuaded him to go into a more legitimate business. 
and it wasn't photography. It was real estate. <laughs> and so he did for a while. He then started a jingle business before leaving for Columbia Pictures, but he was so critical of the commercials being produced there that he was fired, and his boss suggested an ad agency. After Mr. Backer retired, he moved to Virginia, where he owned thoroughbred horses. That's the life of Bill Backer, who taught the world Not to bad. sing. Not yeah. too bad. Mark Hauser, it's been a pleasure spending time with you in your beautiful studio here and being Thank surrounded by, by all your work. May we come back again sometime? Anytime. May we come back and have our pictures taken? In swimsuits? Yeah, the swimsuit. The swimsuit edition. Booth one. The swimsuit edition. <laughs> I, I, I did, can see it now. I, I have a I have a a, a body for radio. Yeah, you, yes, <laughs> it would be a bold and brave and daring thing, and Mark would capture my true essence. Other other pearls of wisdom: keep fighting, be nice to Cindy Crawford, don't cut her hair, don't cut Cindy Crawford's hair. Mark Hauser, it's a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, Roscoe. A pleasure. High five. Thanks to our producer. I want to be sure that you know to follow us on Facebook and like us on Twitter and email us at alist at booth-one.com with your comments, your pictures, your Booth One experiences. Uh, We love to hear from our listeners and we will respond very promptly. Thanks again, everyone. Thank you, Roscoe. Thank you. This has been Booth One. Thanks.